Turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, if you want to follow along, uh, we've created some notes. The notes are there to help you follow along with the sermon and to keep me straight, make sure I'm preaching the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Brother Travis preached a big section of it. And during this time, uh, we want to just ask the Lord for uh, His help to hear His Word, to believe it, to live it. Father in heaven, we are glad that we are here. I'm so glad we have friends and family here from afar, from close. God, I pray that your word would penetrate and pierce our hearts. I pray that the truth of Christ, his resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection would ever be before us, that the truth of that would be the stars that align our life, Lord. The scriptures would teach us truth and we would live our lives by it that we would trust in the Christ. Oh, Father, renew in us the hope of the resurrection, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. During this time, we get all kinds of shows and newspapers asking the question, who is the real Jesus? Or sometimes you get the question, did the resurrection really occur? Or sometimes you get the resurrection, does it really matter? In fact, I was even on my Amazon Fire Stick, you know, and I'm clicking away, and then there's this, there's this promo. Who's the real Jesus? Who is Jesus? They, fa they fail to look at the evidence of what Scripture has said. They want to make up different evidence so that they could believe in that. But does the resurrection really matter? Does it really change our lives? I mean, we get together and we think of Easter and we think of going to church maybe once or twice a year, right? Going to church, coming together, maybe having a good meal, then going to sleep, and then not thinking about it. Does the resurrection matter? Does it have any effect in our real lives? I mean, sometimes people think that the resurrection is like the black sheep of all doctrines, of the teachings of Scripture. You know, I want to teach about God's love. I want to teach about God's mercy. I want to teach about God's omnipotence. But when you come to the resurrection, some people shy away. They say, well, you know what, that's supernatural, but it's not as much needed. Just the teachings of Scripture are good enough for my life. As long as I love my neighbor and I practice the golden rule, I should be okay. But you know what? What is distinct about Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that, all of our faith, everything rests on it. If you have no resurrection of Christ, you have no resurrection of believers. If you have no resurrection of believers, you have no resurrection of Christ, you have no Christianity. It is a cornerstone. It is a it is what is built on. It is of vital importance for the believer. It is to settle the heart and mind on truth and future events based on what Christ has already done. The reason why a believer can have a hope is because Christ rose from the dead. The reason that I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven, not based on anything I've done, not based on any good works that I've done, but because of what Christ has done himself on the cross and because he's died on the cross and resurrected to prove who he is, that he is conqueror over death, conqueror over sin. And if you trust in him, you can be saved. That is the only hope that I have. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. We're only going to go through 
verses 20 to 28. I had Brother Travis read the whole section so that we can get the flow. But in verses 20 to 28, it reads, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the, to the God and Father, whom he abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. God gave this passage to you this morning. He is speaking through his word to you this morning so that your hope would be wholly on the resurrection granted by the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would hope in what he has accomplished. That you would hope in his person. Now, the resurrection of Christ secures two incredible expectations for the believers. Two incredible expectations that you could bank your life. You could live your life this way. Expectations that are solid and can be counted on. The first expectation is that if you are in Christ, notice he says here in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The all is not the all without exception. The all is the all in Christ. Okay, It's kind of like when my wife says, here's a list of things to get at the grocery store. And then I come home and she says, did you get all of it? Right? She's not saying all without exception. She's saying all on my list. Correct? Right? So what he's saying here, it is all who are in Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, this is for you. If you trust in Christ, this is for you. And what God promises in verses 20 to 23 is that Jesus will physically raise you. Jesus will physically raise you. Christ, verse 20, Christ defeated death. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, you notice in verse 20, verse 20, he says, but now. Now, when someone starts speaking to you and says, but now, I have to go to the store. Or, but now, I have to leave now. Or, but now, let us eat, right? When someone says that, I want to know what he means because, but now, has a connection to what is before it, correct? And so what he has done is he has given us a context. The but now is all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he says here, if you look, it follows the same line of argumentation from verse 13. Notice verse 20. The verse 20 says, but now Christ has raised us from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And so you see that Paul is Speaking about this polemic, he's saying, if the resurrection didn't occur, then this is true. If the resurrection did occur, then this is true, right? He's saying, since it did. Now, what is this 
that he's talking about, well, he's talking about the resurrection and the gospel. First, in verses 1, look at verse 1. He says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. Now, the gospel simply means good news. But it is good news in this context. That man is in sin and apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ, coming on the cross, we are but lost. That's why the Bible is called good news. That's why the gospel is called good news. Sometimes at work, people will use the word gospel. They say, well, he thinks that's gospel truth. No, that is something else. This is talking about salvation in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And he says, which I preach to you, which I also receive, which I stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. And he's going to talk about, in verses 1 to 4, the importance of the resurrection in the gospel message. Notice, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul is saying this. This is the most important thing that I have to say. This is what, this is what defines me. If you were to squeeze out my essence, this is what I have to say. This is the most important thing about Christianity. It is not simply morals or laws or don't do this or do that. It is not that. It is the gospel message of Jesus Christ himself. And he says this is the most important thing. What? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried. And he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Notice, he was raised on the third day. Notice verses 4 to 8. It is the verification of the gospel message. He says, and that appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then to the five hundred at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen. Now, you would look at that and you'd probably skip that. And you'd say, well, why did he even put that? Why did he say some apostles and then to the 12 and then to 500? Notice this little phrase, what he says. They appeared to 500 at one time, most of whom remain until now. And so what Paul is basically doing is he's giving an apologetic for the resurrection story. You see, the book of Corinthians was written around 55 AD. Okay? Christ died around 3 or 4 AD. So that means about 50 years. Okay? And if my math's correct, that would, if you would kind of compare that to us, like say right now, 2017, what's 50 years before? My math's bad. Nelson, you tell me. What's that? 50 years before, right? About the 70s, right? Late 60s, early 70s, right? JFK was killed in 63, right? What Paul is doing is this. He's saying, he's saying, notice, he says, after there appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. He's saying, if you don't believe me, go check them out yourself. They're still here, about 500 people. You can check with them, you see, the whole beauty of Scripture is that it is written contemporaneous with the history. It is only 50 years ago. It would be like us and JFK. And you would say, all I had to do is look at history and talk to people who were there when he existed. When JFK was shot, did that actually occur? No, I don't believe. Did it occur? Yes, I don't believe you. Show me proof. Show me scientific evidence. That's what people say about the resurrection of Christ. Show me scientific evidence. 
You don't even believe that. Folks, let me tell you something about the resurrection of Christ, okay? This is not even part of the sermon. So I hope we get there, okay? Let me tell you something. The people who believe that the only way you could know truth is by science, okay? That whole philosophy is called scientism, okay? That you could only know truth if you apply the scientific method. That is false. No one believes that. No one believes that. Why? Because we have we there's other ways of knowing truth, historical truth. We know truth by reading history. That's not scientific method. You remember fifth grade? Control group, experimental group, repeatable results, hypothesis must be proven. You remember? That's what people think, okay? So, no, unless it can be proved by science. You don't even believe that. You don't even believe that. How, do you believe, how can you scientifically prove that you had a mom, that you had a grandpa? You just know history. There's witnesses. And so what the Bible is telling us is it's giving us evidence that is appropriate to the kinds of facts that are being disseminated. Correct? It's giving us historical evidence. It's giving us narrative. It's giving us eyewitnesses. And Paul says, go check them out yourself. They're still with us. And so, that's the verification of the gospel message. Thirdly, there is the preaching of the resurrection in the gospel message. Paul dedicates his whole life. He says in verses 10 through 11, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet I but the grace of God. So Paul dedicates his life. And now Paul switches to verse 12. And he tells you what are the seven fatal flaws. Okay? If Jesus did not raise from the dead, which I believe he did, which all the historical accounts show, which, which eyewitnesses bear, okay, which the changed life of the apostles show, that is of huge evidence, okay? You got to think about this, okay? Think about this. The apostles were frightened when Jesus was being killed, when he went to the cross. They were frightened. And what happened? They scattered. And what changed their minds such that, the, that in the next three days they would start to preach right in front of the people? In the, next, in the near future, they would preach right in front of the people, of the same people who killed Christ. What changed? They saw the living Christ. And that's why they were bold and they didn't care if they were killed. And all of them were killed except one. Um. By old age. But notice, there are seven fatal flaws that Paul says. As we even continue to the beginning of this portion. He says, notice in verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead. How do among you, some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 50 years, 50 years from the exact occurrence of the resurrection. People are already saying it didn't happen. The Corinthians were saying it didn't happen. They brought in their uh, own religions. They couldn't believe it. They said the resurrection didn't occur. There were some false teachers that were coming into the church, trying to shake the faith of some. And then he says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. The first fatal flaw is you have foolhardy allegiance. Okay? If Christ didn't raise from the dead, 
If Christ didn't raise from the dead, you have foolhardy allegiance. Why are you following Jesus? He's just like any other man. Why would you dedicate your life to Jesus if he didn't raise from the dead? See, Paul says it's not enough just for moral teaching. It's not enough just for the stories that Jesus taught. It's not enough just for the prophecies that he has fulfilled. He had to be raised from the dead to show who he was, to verify his claim that he is the son of God and to verify his power over death and sin. Secondly, he says in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. He says, you're wasting your time preaching and gospel ministry and church. It's all a waste of time if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Giving yourself in service to Christ, to his church, is a waste of time. Paul says, your faith, in verse 14, is also in vain. He says, you're following a myth. Believing is a waste of time. Verse 15, he says, Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God. He says, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you're a false witness. In other words, he's saying, you are a liar. You're telling other people about Jesus and you don't even believe it. Or you're telling other people about Jesus and Christ didn't even raise from the dead. He's saying you're a liar if he didn't come back to life. I think scary in verse 17. Notice he says there. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. If the Lord Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, you're not forgiven. See, this is, this is sad, sad news. This is not good news. This is what Paul is saying. Okay? Don't worry, he'll pivot, he'll change, okay? He's going to switch here. You just got to keep along. Verse 18, he says, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He says, You will join hopeless, dead scores of people with no hope for the future. You just are just material. You just kind of formed out of the primordial ooze of evolution and you just kind of formed and then you just kind of just go back. There is no hope. Verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. He said, if Christ didn't raise from the dead and you're following Christ, he said, you are pathetic. You're pathetic. Correct? That's the logic. Paul is brilliant. I love the way he writes. God, in his infinite wisdom, allowed us to see a glimpse of that. But what's fantastic, in verse 20, he changes. He says, if this Christ didn't, wasn't raised, and all of these fatal flaws are true. But verse 20, he says, but now Christ has been raised. And here's the encouragement, brothers and sisters. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Notice he says, Jesus will physically raise you. We gave the context 
of those who didn't believe it, but he says Jesus will physically raise you. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Notice he says raised. This means to be physically resurrected, to be given a glorified body. What we teach, what the Christian theology teaches, what the Bible teaches is that if you have died in Christ, your soul goes immediately into the presence of God, immediately into the presence of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Immediately, your body gets buried in the ground, disintegrates into ashes. Okay? What the Bible teaches is, at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, he will not only resurrect your body, he will cause the molecules to come back and come forth. He will bring them together miraculously and he will merge that back with your soul in heaven. And what he says this is, why would he do that? Follow with me, okay? Keep with me. Why would he do that? Why don't he just give me a new body? Right? Why does he have to use the old stuff and then resurrect that? Why would he do that? The answer is a little bit lower down, but we want to talk about this first phrase here. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, the Bible says that Christ is the first fruit. It's an agricultural term. The first fruit is the first of the crop. They don't come all at the same time. It's an Old Testament reference. In Leviticus chapter 23, it says, when you enter the land, I'm going to give to you, reap its harvest, and you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. It was, a, it was a commandment given to the Israelites that when they have their first crop, they were to give the first portion to the priest. And the reason they were supposed to give the first portion is it was supposed to be a sacrifice unto God. Number one, it was a sacrifice unto God. And number two... It was a promise of more to come. Okay? A promise of more to come. Jesus was both. He was the first fruit of those who are asleep. That is a euphemism for being dead. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit. He is the first fruit. He was both. He was a sacrifice to God, and he is the promise of more. And that's where you fit in if you're in Christ. If you believe in Christ, you will be resurrected with him. As sure as he was a sacrifice, you are the promise of more. Because he was a sacrifice to God, he was, he was the promise of more and you're the harvest. Now, what did Jesus have to do to be able to resurrect a whole people to himself? He had to reverse the curse. He had to reverse the curse. Now, there is a curse upon all of mankind. It is the curse of Adam. The curse of Adam, it says, For since by man came death, whereas in Adam all die. Right? Verse 21a and verse 22a. Mankind has a curse upon him. Entry into that curse is birth. Okay? Mankind has a curse upon him. Entry into that birth, entry into that curse is birth. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. How did he, how did he, how is he going to resurrect us? Why? Why do we need it? Because of the curse. God created man. 
man and woman. There is no, uh, he just starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man and woman. Man rebelled in the garden. And when he rebelled, God caused a curse upon him. And we are, because by virtue of being born, we are, virt- we are in that curse. He says here in verse 14, because you have done this, he's talking to Satan, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you will go, and the dust you will eat in all the days of your life. And he's cursing Satan still. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. More on that later. Notice in in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you'll bring forth children. Verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In the toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So now what he's saying is, you're going to have to continue working. Work is not evil. He's saying that when you have work, he's saying that your your sustenance is going to be attached to working. But notice he says here, here is the, in verse 19, here is the curse of death. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So the Bible is saying that because of sin, We are going to suffer the curse of death. And when Adam sinned, immediately he was spiritually dead. Later he became physically dead. And that's exactly how we are right now. We are spiritually dead to God apart from Christ. The spiritual death in Ephesians chapter 2 says, and you're dead in your trespasses and sins. What that means is our hearts don't want him. We don't want him to be master over us. Our wills don't decide to seek after Christ. Okay? Our thoughts are distorted images of who God is. Or our thoughts are, or we start to think he doesn't even exist. He doesn't exist in this world. When the whole world is screaming, all of creation is screaming that he does. And you in your mind says he doesn't exist because I don't want him to be over me. And the Bible says because of that, Because of that, we are under a curse of death. But you notice, he says here, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So first, there is the curse of the first Adam, but there's also the victory of the second Adam. The victory of the second Adam. Jesus is often called the second Adam. If entry into the curse of the first Adam is birth, entry into the victory of the second Adam is rebirth. If entry into the curse of the first Adam is birth, entry into the victory of the second Adam 
is rebirth. You are made alive. The Bible says that when you come to Christ, when you believe in who he is, God says he regenerates you. He gives you life. You're born again. You are a new creation. The things that you didn't want to do, you now want to do. You now want to serve him. You now want to be with other believers. You now want to read his word. You want to do that now. The things that you used to love, you don't love anymore. The filth, the sin. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, come with me to Romans chapter 5, Paul elaborates on this. Romans chapter 5. He elaborates on this a little bit more. Romans chapter 5 and verses 14 to 19, he says, Nevertheless, Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Notice he says, death reigned in Adam. Okay, And then he says he's a type of him to come. He is a type of Christ. Right, Verse 15, he says, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. Look at verse 17. For by the transgression of the one, that is the sin of Adam, Death reigned through the one. Because of Adam, everyone suffers spiritual death and physical death. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. We are born under a curse. You are freed in Christ. The curse is part and parcel with what the gospel that we proclaim. God created man and woman in his image. Man and woman has rebelled against a holy God. The righteous requirement to be with him, to serve with him, to fellowship with God is perfection. And none of us could meet it. We all need Christ. God came in the flesh in the form of a baby. He grew up into a man, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. He said he was God incarnate. He proved he was God incarnate by being resurrected from the dead. If you trust solely in Jesus and his saving work on the cross and his resurrection, you will be saved and you will be free from the curse. Listen to me, okay? I know it's hot. Listen to me. I'm sweating too, okay? You were not you were made so for so much more. All of you. You are the very image bearer of God himself. You were made to glorify him. Because of your sin, you're not doing that. I wasn't doing it. Broke my mom's heart all the time. I was a rebel. I wasn't doing it. And God showed me the beauty of Christ and the forgiveness in Jesus. And he changed my life. And he changed many of the folks who are in here. 
You can be free from the curse. What's the curse? I, I'm not cursed. I'm a good person. I didn't kill anybody. Isn't that always what people say? I didn't kill anybody. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Right? You're checking with the wrong standard. The standard is perfection. God doesn't say, oh, you can go to heaven because you're not as bad as that person. God says, have you met all of my righteous requirements? The answer to everyone is, no, I haven't. But I know one who has. And that is Jesus Christ. And if you attach to him by faith, all of his righteous works and righteous deeds and his person, who he is, will be credited to you and you will be free. Christ shares the spoils each in his own order. It says Christ the first fruits. There's an order in relationship to his coming. And I believe there's an order of who he will re resurrect. I think first he will resurrect the church. Those who have believed upon Christ since when Christ came to now. It says the dead in Christ shall rise first. You could write down 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Secondly, it would be the believers in the seven-year tribulation. That's the order. I think that's Revelation 20 verse 4. And then lastly, it'll be the Old Testament saints in Daniel 12 verse 2. If there's fears of death, the fears of death no longer entrap the Christian. Failing body, sick bodies, losing friends in Christ. Notice, this is the application of this truth. God doesn't give us words so that you can kind of, oh, that's kind of nice. That's kind of nice. I'm glad I know that. That's good. I'm going to go on with my life. He doesn't give you words for that. He gives you words to ground you when it gets hard, when you lose a loved one. Notice he says here, this is what he says. He says here in verse 54. Look at verse 54. This is all connected to the resurrection. He says, for this perishable must put on imperishable. He's talking about believers. They will die, be put on the ground, and then he, they will be put on imperishable. That is their new bodies. And when this imperishable will have put on imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality. And notice, this is what the Christian can sing. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. And then he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, now if you're young, you probably don't feel it. Right? But as you grow and progress in age, you know there is your, your clock is set. And I'm not saying this to be scary. I'm just saying this as a matter of fact. In fact, even if you are a young person, you know you've lost some friends. I can't even believe I lost some friends even in high school. Guys were getting shot in my high school. People were dying from cancer already. Right? You have a time set. And there is a sting of death, that fear that comes over us. If you don't know where you're going, if you have not dealt with God, 
And I invite you. His forgiveness is free. Come to him so you know. You know. And let Christ be the target of your life. The barometer by which you set everything in your life. So that now, I mean, let me tell you a story. This is how it, this is how it connects. I remember I was with a, a brother in our Bible study. He was 84 years old, widower in the Navy. His wife had passed like 30 years before. I'm at his deathbed with him. And I'm looking at him. I said, Ray, Ray Christofferson, good brother. Some of you guys might remember him. I said, Ray, brother, do you remember me? And he says, Armando? My name's Angelo, by the way. Got my name wrong. I said, no, my name's Angelo. Don't you remember? And I asked him questions, and he couldn't remember. And I said, Ray. He doesn't remember me, but I know he remembered Scripture. right? And I asked him, what's 1 Corinthians 15, 58? Look at it. Look at that verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my beloved brethren. He said it without blinking. He said, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. And he was ready to go home. Death did not win over him because death did not win over Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are victorious over death. You know this, okay? I don't care what the world is teaching. You know that mankind was made for a greater purpose, and that is to give glory to God. And you know the ripping of relationships when someone dies because we were not meant to die. We were meant to live forever and ever with each other and with God. You know that to be true. And that's why when you bury someone in the ground, it rips. It doesn't hurt. It rips. That is the sting of death. And Christ came to remove it. And if you're not trusting in him, oh, I fear for you. He has given his blood for you. You don't have to do anything. Just believe. You mean I don't have to do these steps and follow? No, this is not Scientology. This is not other religions. You just have to believe in the gospel. And he will remove the sting of death. Oh, victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? It's not there. And I tell you, many brothers and sisters who have faced martyrdom as they were being killed in Rome. They would put them in the Colosseum and little teenage girls would go to their death knowing they would be ushered in into heaven. Where is that strength and where is that power that comes from Christ? Secondly, my second point, Jesus will finally restore everything. And I'll go, this, I'll go through this rather quickly. Notice in verse 24, he says, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. If you recall in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Do you remember that? 
So God gives all authority to Jesus Christ. And from there, he disseminates the gospel so that the church could spread the word of the good news. But after he deals with the, with the world, and after he deals with the people, Jesus is going to give the world back to God. He is going to rid all rebellion and give it right back to God the Father. It's amazing. He gave it to the Son. Deal with them. Come as a Savior the first time. Come as a judge the second time. Yes, Jesus is coming as a judge the second time. Those who mock him will not mock anymore. He came gentle on, on the donkey. He will come on a white horse judging his enemies. And now Jesus will give it back and he will rule without rivals. Notice in verse 25 and 26, he says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. He has put all things in subjection. Those who scorn his name, there will be no more murderers going free like that guy who killed two girls in Indiana. Tim Sled's friends, his daughters were killed out there. They can't find the murderer. Like the rapists who get away with it. There will be no more scorners on this earth. Do you understand? He's going to deal with them. There will be no more liars, no more thieves, no more idolaters who worship themselves. All those who scorn will be forced to bow. Even death is forced to bow. Jesus will not come as a suffering servant. He comes as a just warrior. Therefore, in Philippians, he says, God highly has exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every knee, tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you don't bow now in repentance, you will bow later in judgment. And I don't tell this to you because I, I like to do that. I don't like the message. If you don't bow in repentance now, you will bow in judgment. He will vanquish all his enemies. He's just storing up time. He's just letting it go. Everyone is building up judgment for themselves and he will come. He will rule without rivals. He will reign in perfect harmony, verses 27 to 28. All things will be in subjection and when all things are subjected to him, verse 28, the son himself will also be subjected to the one that is God the Father who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Jesus Christ will rule with God the Father in perfect harmony as the God-man who perfectly submits himself to the will of God the Father. And they will rule in perfect harmony. Now, let me talk to you and we'll end with this. Christian, what have you to fear? If you trust in Christ, what have you to fear? Jesus will physically raise you. Jesus will finally and fully restore everything. There is nothing this world can take from you. You think you've lost? God will restore, brothers and sisters. And I didn't finish the story. Okay. The reason why he has to resurrect you is because he has to prove he has defeated death. 
If he allowed it to occur, that means he didn't reverse the whole curse. He has to reverse every single aspect of the curse. And he does that in Christ. If you don't know him, turn to him. How then ought you to live? Not to be mastered by this world or its impulses. Not one worried that evil men rule. Oh, Christian, you've been ushered into the harvest of Christ. He is the first fruit. And you as the necessary and promised crop of his sacrifice. If you're thinking about Christ and you don't know him, or this doesn't make sense and you want to ask questions, I'm here. There's many other folks who are here. Get your questions answered. We didn't come here. Please, please listen to me. We didn't come here to play games. We came here to give the life message of Christ. He is risen indeed. Father in heaven, we pray. Do your mighty work. We celebrate your son who is victorious. That you would think of us and condescend to die on the cross for us. That they mock you. They mock your son. They don't mock Buddha. They don't mock Allah. They mock Christ. Have mercy, Father. Show the beauty of Christ to our friends, to our loved ones, to those who we meet. Let them come to know him. His forgiveness, he will make all things right. He will make all things right. Soften hearts that are hard against you. Only you can do it. And we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.